Please remain standing as you're able. When Jesus was asked the greatest commandment, he began with the Shema of ancient Israel in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. So if you'll follow after me. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Had. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. We're spending the summer with the parables of Jesus and the Gospel of Matthew. We are in the 18th chapter. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who began to settle accounts with his servant. The first was brought to him, owed him 10,000 talents. And as he was unable to pay, he was uh, ordered to be sold along with his wife, his children, and everything he had to repay the debt. But falling on his knees, he said to the king, please be patient with me. He begged, and I will pay everything back. In pity, the master forgave or canceled the debt and let him go. Then the servant went out and found a fellow servant who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him and said, pay me back. What you owe. The man fell on his knees before him and begged him, saying, Be patient with me, and I will pay you back everything. But he refused and threw him into the prison until he could pay the debt. When other servants heard what had happened, they went and told the king all that had happened. And so the king had the servant come before him, and he said, You wicked servant, how could you have done this when I treated you with mercy. You should have treated the other servant with mercy as well. And he handed him over to the jailers and ordered that he be tortured until he repaid all the debt. And Jesus said, So it is that my heavenly Father will treat each of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. Well, I bring you good news from the Gospel of Matthew this morning. The debt ceiling has been raised. Now, this is not from Washington. This is from Matthew. But the story is about a man who had a tremendous debt, 10,000 talents. It's just hard to even guess how much that that might be. It's like a gazillion dollars. Uh, Josephus tells us that even in his prime, King Herod the Great only raised 900 talents annually in taxes. Less than 10% of tax on an entire country is how much this man owed. An astronomical debt. But we see the king, uh, reflecting God's limitless mercy, uh, allowed the man to go free. And we get a picture of the economy of God. The negotiations don't take very long at all. The king says, I'm throwing you in jail till you can pay and all your family and everything you have. And he said, be patient with me. And the king says, okay, lets him go and cancels the debt. And in this parable, we get a picture of what I would call God's economy, the way things work. One of the things that they did in Jesus' day is they used the word debt to talk about our sin. So when we talk about a debt ceiling here, we're talking about the level of sin 
that is covered by the mercy and grace of God. And I get a picture in this parable of the way God's economy works. It it seems like it works in sort of three movements. The first movement is this, that we recognize we are hopelessly over our head. We are hopelessly in debt because of the sins that we have committed. Since we're quoting John Wesley today, I looked to see if John Wesley had a recorded sermon on this text, and I couldn't find one. But I found him in another sermon talking about this text, and he said, In the same way that the wicked servant cannot hope to repay the king, neither can we hope to repay God for all of God's mercy. And I think that's an an accurate summary, that we come before God uh, with our own debt and sin, and we have to recognize we're over our head. The second movement is then we accept the mercy, the cancellation of debt that God offers. That uh, One of the ways the early church used to picture it is like this, that God's love is like an ocean and our sin is like a pebble. And no matter how big that pebble is, it is always overwhelmed by the love of God. And so the first thing is recognizing our debt. The second thing is swimming in the grace that's offered. But there's a third movement in this parable, and that is taking that mercy and grace and forgiveness of God and extending it to other people so that what God has done flows through us and flows generously to others. This is no trickle-down theory of economy. This is God pouring great mercy on us and expecting us to pour great mercy on others. But something happens in the story, and the kingdom is The kingdom economy is stalled. It slows down to nothing. Well, what happened? A man who had been forgiven much refused to forgive even a little. I can't even begin to compare 10,000 talents to 100 denarii. 10,000 talents is the gross national product. 100 denarii is what a laborer might make minimum wage over like a three-month period. They're just hardly any comparison, but it stops there, and the economy slows to nothing because the man refuses to forgive. Now, why did he not forgive? I don't know. The parable doesn't say. I've got some guesses, and part of my guess is when Jesus said, so my heavenly Father will treat each of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart, indicates to me there's some sort of heart issue going on, and I, I just wonder. If the guy on the, on the ledger sheet has been forgiven, but in his heart he really hasn't accepted it. That it's never made that information of his forgiveness and that experience hasn't made from the head to the heart. It just didn't get there. And so perhaps he's still struggling with a life that he's made. I mean, how do you get a gazillion dollars in debt? I mean, he's messed up his life. And one of the things I remember Fred Craddock once saying is that people who are at war inside themselves usually make a casualty of everybody around them. So I think when you struggle with your own life and where you failed in that, you tend to be harder on other people. Another theory goes this way. When we find that our lives are out of control, we look for some way to set control on another person since we can't even control ourselves. This guy's debt and his life has gotten way out of control. And so in order to try to get something in order, he grabs a servant who owes him very little by the throat. I don't know. The Bible doesn't say how he got here, but it does say very clearly in this parable what the results are of failing to forgive. We find this man imprisoned. And you might say, well, the king did it. But I think it's more clear that he did it to himself, that the chains that he wears 
are chains of his own making because he refused to forgive. And I think the parable might suggest, without saying it directly, that those of us who refuse to forgive others, no matter what the injustice is that they have done us or done to those that we love, have imprisoned ourselves and have put trains around our own life. We were talking about this in our pastor's meeting Tuesday, and Donna brought up what they uh, do with baby elephants, and that is they'll take the baby elephant and put a chain around the leg of the baby elephant and chain them to wherever they want them to stay. And the elephant learns that it can't go uh, past that chain. But as the elephant gets stronger and stronger, the same chain stays on the elephant. And the elephant could easily break the chain and move to freedom. But the elephant is so conditioned to live in chains that it never makes the effort to go free. I wonder sometimes we get so conditioned to a reciprocal ray of relationship, which is you do something to me, so I'm going to do something to you, or worse, that it becomes our natural way of thinking and acting, and we can never experience the freedom that God really wants for us. How do I know that God wants freedom for us? Well, in a couple ways. One is this. When Jesus used the word forgive on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, it's, it's like a word picture. And one of the word pictures that may be indicated there is sort of an untying or releasing. Uh, when Jesus preached his first sermon, he quoted the prophet Isaiah. And he said that he had come to set the captives free. When Paul came along, a, dis- a disciple of Jesus, uh, Paul said, Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom seems clear to me from the Exodus on that God wants freedom for God's people. But what happens is God's people to continue to chain themselves up by their own unwillingness to forgive other people. Well, the parable doesn't say it, but I think just as a public service this morning, I want to just walk through a few things about forgiveness that I hope will help you move toward the freedom that I think God has for you and has for me. The first thing is this. It's very important that you understand that forgiveness is not an emotion. Any more than love is an emotion in the Bible. Love is an action. Agape love is what God did for you in Jesus Christ. Forgiveness is the same way. It's not having a warm, fuzzy feeling for someone who's hurt you. It's a way that you treat them. So my first suggestion to you is that forgiveness, at least at the most elementary level, involves you letting go of the need and the effort to get revenge on whoever hurt you. It's, it's an action. It's not, even, it's not a warm feeling that you suddenly have for this person, but it starts with a decision and an action that flows from the decision. Second thing that would seem to help, I think, is that you need to make a few basic, uh, recognize a few basic things in forgiveness. The first one is this. Recognize that you've been hurt. Well, that may seem like a known brainer. Of course you realize that or you wouldn't have this issue. Maybe, but I think there are a lot of people who wander around with unforgiven hurts in their life because they don't want to admit to themselves or anybody else that they've really been hurt. You know how the kid will tell you, well, that didn't hurt when you say something or or do something. And sometimes as adults, we carry that same attitude. I'm reminded of a great rabbi in the 20th century who, after World War II, is is speaking and touring in Europe. And a Nazi, um, uh, former Nazi soldier comes up to him and says, Rabbi, He says, will you forgive me for what I did in the war? And the rabbi said, I can't. He said, I wasn't at Buchenwald. He said, I wasn't at Auschwitz. I wasn't at DeKalb. He said, I was in Cincinnati. He said, others who suffered the hurt and their families have to forgive you. Now, whether or not you agree with what the rabbi said, I think part of what he's saying is this, that in order for there to be forgiveness, somebody has to be hurt. And so you have to recognize 
clearly how you were hurt. So I think it starts with that recognition. Can you articulate that? Can you admit that? Then secondly then, but can you admit that the person that hurt you is a human being and that humans basically make mistakes? Humans run up debts. Humans make errors because we're not God. Human beings are infallible. They have bad days. They have bad months. Some have bad years or even a lifetime. They make poor decisions. They, they uh, don't think through things when they're scared. They get seduced by things that shouldn't seduce them. They make mistakes because they're not God. Henry Nouwen, the late Henry Nouwen, his definition of forgiveness is when we allow another person not to be God. Can we just recognize that person is not perfect? They're not made to be perfect. Perfect is not something they're going to get to. They make mistakes for whatever reason. They made a mistake and hurt us. And then I think comes a recognition that, well, quite honestly, I make mistakes too. I'm a debtor. I'm a debtor. And I think John Wesley's right. If I look at this parable accurately, I'm not the guy that owes the 100 denarii. If I look at this, par- this parable accurately, I'm the guy that owes 10,000 talents. To recognize that there are people who need to forgive me for what I've done is an important step. That we all make mistakes and, well, actually I make mistakes too. And then I think we move toward making an effort to give up wanting revenge on another person. To quit trying to punish them or have them be punished by someone else for what they did wrong. Can we begin to actually actively pray for and will their blessing? When we pray for them, we have been praying perhaps that God would ruin their life, destroy their life, bankrupt their business, make everyone who knows them hurt them as as badly as they hurt us. Can we move to more sermon on the mount praying while we pray for those who persecute us and we love our enemies? Now, this obviously is not easy or Jesus wouldn't have even talked about forgiveness. But can we make a step in that direction? And I believe after we pray for a person and will them to be blessed over time, what's in our head for forgiveness may actually make its way to the heart. I don't think you can forgive and forget, at least not right off the bat. But you'll never get to forget if you don't start with a forgive. With the giving up the need for revenge and maybe actively beginning to ask God to do something good in that person's life in spite of what they did to you. There's a parable. Now, whether it was around in Jesus' time is open for debate. It's a rabbinic parable. But I'm going to tell it to you anyway. It's a parable about a master who loaned a lot of his servants money. And then one day, one of the servants came to him and said, Master, I remember I owe you money. And I need to pay you. And according to the parable, the master said, Why did you remind me that you owed me? I had already forgotten all about it. And the rabbis wanted to suggest that God was like that. That God is in a place where God remembers our sins no more. Can we move toward that place? in slow and halting steps with other people.